I wonder if you have seen the website, The Art of Manliness. This website, uh, it's like boot camp for guys to learn how to be a classic man. It's got tutorials on how to tie a tie, how to shave like your grandpa, how to grill a steak, fix a car, install a washing machine, and take a lady on a proper date. It's an interesting site uh, which reveals that maybe men don't feel like they're manly enough or lack the skills to be a man's man in today's society. Uh, funny side note, Chris Kolar gave me the book, The Art of Manliness. He said he had been like reading it with his son for fun and doing like, you know, practice jujitsu with him for what it's worth. Okay, but a site like this and a book like that, which I have the book and I'm reading some of it and it's fun, but it raises another question. Is masculinity mainly about skills, right? Could we set up a man scouts program like the Boy Scouts but for grown-ups? Teach guys to wear proper suits, start a fire, become an expert in home repair, issue certificates in various aspects of manhood to all who complete certain aspects of the training. Over the last three weeks, we have looked at the foundations for manhood and womanhood in Genesis 1. And what we've seen is that men and women are equally made in the image of God. So they share equal value, equal worth, equal dignity, equal importance. But then in Genesis 2, we saw significant distinctions between the first man and the first woman and the inclinations that they would have towards fulfilling God's creation mandate. Then we move to Genesis 3. We see that these inclinations are reinforced as God um, outlined differing consequences for sin for the woman and for the man. Therefore, the fundamental building blocks for rightly understanding manhood and womanhood is beginning with the fact that men and women are designed by God to complement each other. And guys, there's notes on the back if you want to just grab yourself notes. That'll help you to follow along. So anybody who comes in, just Brad, if you could just make sure they're able to get notes. So, therefore, uh, the fundamental building blocks for understanding, for rightly understanding biblical manhood and womanhood is beginning with the fact that men and women are designed by God to complement each other with distinct dispositions and beautiful roles to play according to his design. So that's the, that's the baseline. Okay? And today, in our second week on masculinity, what we want to focus on is how the Bible mainly te defines masculinity not as skill levels, skill sets, or talents, but according to character. Character that displays God's glory through Jesus Christ. So that's what we're going to focus on today. We want to focus on how the Bible mainly defines masculinity not as skill sets, not as, you know, man scouts that we can then have training programs and as you acquire manly skills, get manly merit badges per se. But the Bible defines masculinity according to character, character that displays God's glory through imaging Jesus Christ. So it is of utmost importance that men know who we should be like because that will affect our disposition in how we serve others. So it's not primarily about manly skills, grilling, or being able to, to wrench. It is not a macho lifestyle, 
even though Rico Suave is very... Anybody know that my nickname for Eric Larson is Rico Suave? All right. Well, there you have it. But uh, it is not a macho lifestyle, skills on the grill, skills in the garage. It is humble, initiative-taking. And I'm actually being very intentional with every single one of these words here. It's humble, initiative-taking, risk-absorbing, sacrificial, responsible, generous, protective, loving, Christ-like character. But how many of us can have this type of character? Well, or I misphrased that. How can we have this type of character? Okay? How can we have this type of character? Well, it can't be purchased or downloaded at a seminar. Uh, It can't be earned by following a simple formula. It comes only through having our minds renewed. Our minds renewed day by day, day in, day out, by the Spirit of Jesus Christ through the Spirit, through the wisdom found in His Holy Word. Okay? That's how we get these things. We have to be transformed by the Spirit of God as we give ourselves to God's Word. That's the only way it's going to happen. So, what does masculine character practically look like? Let's just work through a definition derived from principles found in God's Word. They're going to help guide our thinking on this topic of biblical masculinity. I'll just give you a public service announcement. This is a really clunky definition. But follow, because it's going to be teased out. And I think this material is really, really good tonight. Okay? The essence of biblical masculinity is a sense of benevolent responsibility to tend God's creation, provide for and protect others, and express loving, sacrificial leadership in particular contexts but described by God's Word. I'm going to just say that again. The essence of biblical masculinity is a sense of benevolent responsibility to tend God's creation, provide for and protect others, and express loving, sacrificial leadership in particular contexts prescribed by God's Word. Now, before we just jump into the imperatives, that would be the commands, let's first briefly consider that phrase, a sense of benevolent responsibility. That's kind of wordy. Biblical masculinity is self-conscious. It involves a guy's attitude toward men and women in the circumstances of life God puts him in. Okay? It's a, it's a benevolent posture in that we seek the good of others through sacrificial service. And it is a weighty stewardship given by God um, for which God will hold us men responsible. But what are we responsible for? Well, let's get into the rest of that definition beginning with uh, that we are responsible to tend God's creation. Okay? We have a benevolent responsibility to tend God's creation. So last week we learned in Genesis 2 that God formed the man from the dust of the ground and it was the ground, more specifically the Garden of Eden, that he would eventually be placed in by God to work it and to keep it. So that's 2.15. As God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens out of the ground... Man was given the responsibility of naming the animals. That was 2, 19 through 20. Therefore, continuing his call to tend the ground, which is God's creation. So how did the fall 
the consequences and curses of sin, how did the fall affect man's relationship to the ground? In one sense, the only thing it changed would be the hardship and pain that he would face. So we read in Genesis 3.17, Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. However, we read in Genesis 3.23 that God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. And then we read in Genesis 2 through, and as we keep reading in Genesis 2 through 3, we see that the, main, that the man's God-given disposition to work the ground is affected, but it's not changed by the fall. This isn't saying that men work and that women don't. They both work in various ways. But this is saying that men in particular are created by God with a distinct inclination toward providing order to creation as representatives of God's dominion. Okay, So men are primarily geared towards providing order to creation Okay, as God's representatives representing his dominion. We are geared to work the ground. Okay, now your working of the ground could be carpentry, your working of the ground could be uh, engineering, it could be computer programming, it could be all sorts of different things, but you're bringing order and structure and, 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 and you're, you're, you're working with the, the creation and you're creating order out of chaos. That's what you're geared to do, men. Okay, part of biblical masculinity. So... That's what it means to tend God's creation. That's part of it. Last week we covered that it also has to do with tending souls as well. I'm focusing on this aspect right now. Uh, Let's turn to that phrase, provide for. So you have a benevolent responsibility to tend God's creation. You have a benevolent responsibility to provide for. Paul writes in 1 Timothy 5.8, If anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his own household, He has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. Now that's true of men and women, of course. But taking what we know from Genesis 2 through 3 with a man's calling to draw forth food from God's creation, combined with what we see about husbands and fathers leading their families in Ephesians chapters 5 and 6, 1 Timothy 5, 8 serves as an insightful text on the particular responsibility that a man should feel for the provision of his family. In providing for the ones for whom he is responsible, a man reflects God's own provision of all that we need for life and godliness. Now, this aspect of masculinity most acutely applies in the home within the context of marriage, right? A husband's responsibility to provide doesn't mean a wife shouldn't assist in earning income. Proverbs 31 pictures a wife with ample abilities that extend both within the sphere of the home and also in business outside the home, okay? But what we're getting at is this. Here's what we're getting at. What we're getting at is this. When there is no bread on the table, it is the husband who should feel the main pressure to get it there, okay? So when there's no bread on the table, men, it should be you that feels the main pressure to get it there. I totally understand every home will have unique differences, no children in the home, physical disability, illness, unemployment, financial debt. We'll address more of that in future weeks. Okay? Now, outside of marriage, applying this verse might mean a son or a brother or an uncle 
or a grandfather stepping up and providing financially for relatives who may need help. It may mean providing financially or um, it may be sorry. It may mean providing financially or mowing the grass or cleaning the gutter of an elderly widow within the church. On a very practical level for the single men, it strongly suggests that you should take responsibility to pay for a date when pursuing a woman. I know that's not apparently what's in these days. You've got to like ask permission if you could pay for the date. Uh, but I'm just saying I think you should pay for the date, okay? Um, because it really shows your intention to provide for her should the Lord be pleased to move you guys towards marriage. The notion is that where a man can be helpful materially in any appropriate way, he should be sensitive to those opportunities and take initiative to act on them. Okay? So let's move to the next word, and, or the next part of the definition, and protect. And protect. Men, you have a responsibility to protect. That's part of your main roles as a man. In Genesis 2.15, the man was commanded by God to keep the garden, to keep, which is a word used elsewhere in Scripture in reference to the roles of soldiers or shepherds or priests, even God himself. It, it, it denotes a, a watching over. It denotes a guarding. It denotes a protecting role for those in their care. So, for example, when God condemned the shepherds or leaders in Israel in Ezekiel 34, do you know what he did? He rebuked them for not protecting the sheep. He said, the weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd, and they became food for the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered over the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. That's Ezekiel 34, 4-6. through 6. Here's the deal, guys. Bottom line, we said this last time, but here's where it comes into play this time. If you hear a sound in your home at 2 a.m., you had better be the one to jump out of bed to check it on it. Check on it, okay? Not your wife, all right? That is your role. The point I'm trying to make is that biblical masculinity senses a natural, God-given responsibility to step forward and put himself between the threat and another person, which would certainly include another woman, regardless if they were his wife or not, right? Why? Okay, because not, and it's not because women are moral cowards. It's because men are designed to sacrificially protect others. And, brothers, this, this protection isn't just limited to physical danger. Men in the home should seek the protection of their family's spiritual well-being first and foremost, Men who are leaders in the church guard the congregation's doctrine by equipping the members to know the truth, right? So let me just pause right there and just take a minute for any questions so far. We've got more to work through and some of these things interlock. But do you have questions so far on this, the essence of biblical masculinity being a responsibility to tend God's creation, provide and protect. Any questions so far? You want to hear if Isaiah Parker has a question. None, none right now, thanks. He just he said he's all good right now. 
Brad? Yes. Yes, good. Yeah, certainly within keeping of everything that's being said here. Okay, let's keep going. More juices may flow here. So, um, next part loving and sacrificial leadership. Loving and sacrificial leadership. In the scriptures, we see that man has the disposition to take responsibility for others. Okay? So we see that. Man has a disposition to take responsibility for others. This becomes formalized in a pattern of leadership for men in various contexts. So God gave Adam commands with the expectation that he would lead Eve in obeying and worshiping God. He then established a pattern of male leadership among the covenant people of God through the priests and kings in Old Testament Israel. Jesus taught his disciples to exercise leadership through service. Husbands are called the head of their wives in Ephesians chapter 5. Men are entrusted with leadership authority in the local church in 1 Timothy 2 and 1 Corinthians 11. So, first things first, to be a man is to welcome, not run from, the mantle of responsibility of leadership. Okay? So number one, to be a man is to welcome, not run from, the mantle or the responsibility of leadership. Okay? To, to be a man is to welcome the responsibility of leadership. So what does a male leader look like? Well, if you have a Bible, please turn them to 1 Timothy 3. 1 Timothy 3. And if you don't, you can just grab one of those Bibles right in front of you there. 1 Timothy 3, and what you see is a kind of traits that are necessary for elders. So those men who lead in the local church. Now you'll notice that aside from the qualifications that he must be able to teach, verse 2, and not a recent convert, verse 6, these qualities all have to do not with some skill set, right, or the length of his resume, um, but with character and with godliness. In fact, since this list defines the character of an elder, it's a good description of biblical masculinity in general. All men would do well to aspire to meet this description, even if they never serve as an elder in any formal sense. So, starting in verse 1, Paul writes, An overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit 
and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. But depending on your experience and background, there are a variety of thoughts, both good and bad, that may come into your mind when you hear that men are called to lead. Okay? So let's just try to get at what we mean with a handful of clarifying statements on the meaning of biblical masculine leadership. So we're just going to have a handful of clarifying statements here on the meaning of biblical masculine leadership. Number one, biblical masculinity expresses itself not in the demand to be served, but in the strength to serve and to sacrifice for the good of others. Okay? So, biblical masculinity expresses itself not in the demand to be served, but in the strength to serve and to sacrifice for the good of others. Jesus said in Luke 22:26, "Let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the one who serves." Leadership according to Jesus is not demanding it is not a demanding demeanor. So, leadership is not a demanding demeanor. Demeanor Sadly, many leaders today use those under their charge for their own benefit. Okay? Have you ever, have you ever felt like that's the case when you're in a job? Like, the, I, I solely exist to make this person look good and they really don't care about me? Um, if, that's, if that's what's happened to you, that's not good leadership. It's certainly not godly leadership. But if the goal of leadership is helping others towards holiness and heaven the leading will have a holy aroma of heaven about it, right? The demeanor of Christ. So immediately after saying that the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, Ephesians 5, Paul says this, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy. Ephesians 5, 23 and 25. Now let me just tell you, I've been pastoring for uh, going on eight years now, and in my years of pastoring, I have never had a woman seek counsel because her husband loved her too much, okay? I will just tell you that I have never had a woman tell me I need, pa- I need counseling pastor because my husband loves me too much. Uh, it just hasn't happened, brothers. So weird. So any man that uses the word submit as some sort of just trump card in marriage in order to simply get his way has drastically misunderstood what it means to be a servant leader. Men must lead, but we must do so with the prosperity of others in mind. We must lead, but we must think about the spiritual good of those whom we are leading, and that is what is motivating us. And, of course, we think of Jesus again, who led his bride to holiness and heaven on the cross, right? So that, though that looked very weak by the world's definition of power, he showed infinite strength by rejecting the world's understanding of power and by embodying servant leadership. Like Jesus, biblical men use their leadership not to gain life, but to lay their lives down for the good of others so that they might flourish and gain life. So that's number one. Number two, and I think this one is huge, Number two, biblical masculinity does not have to initiate every action, but feels the responsibility to provide a general pattern of initiative. I'm not sure if that exact statement is on your notes. If it's not, it is? Okay, good. That's a good one, okay? Like, star that, okay? 
Biblical masculinity does not have to initiate every action, but feels the responsibility to provide a general pattern of initiative. So, for single men, this means that biblical masculinity is evidenced by your taking initiative, like initiative with, with your friendships, initiative with your roommates, to ensure that God is honored in your home and in your relationships. Practically, you are to raise the bar on being accountable on being you are to raise the bar on being accountability and set the tone for expectations of living above reproach. To ensure that what's being viewed on the computer or crude jokes or pattern of wasting time isn't being ignored but being addressed. So that would be a way, single guys, that you would be able to demonstrate leadership and taking a general pattern of initiative. What about those men who are husbands and fathers? Well, this means that in a family setting, the husband doesn't need to and shouldn't, shouldn't be doing all of the thinking and planning. Okay, But he is to take overall responsibility for initiating and carrying through the spiritual planning for family life. Okay? So here's, a good, here's just a good examination question for us guys, whether you're single or married. Here's just a good diagnostic, whether you're single or married, okay? Would those who know you best describe you as reactive or proactive in making plans? In other words, are you characterized as one who is wisely thinking ahead or always having to be told what to do? So are you being thought of as one who is wisely thinking ahead or are you one who is always having to be told what to do? Now, if you're not sure, you just maybe want to ask the person who knows you very well. Okay? Just ask the person who ask a person who knows you very well and, and, and make sure to give them immunity and don't get mad at them if they give you the answer that you don't want. Okay? Um, here's a quote. Uh, quote, lean hard on the people who know you best, love you most, and will tell you when you're wrong. So for married men, there are going to be many times in many areas in the specifics of daily life where the wife is going to plan and initiate numerous things within the house and the family. But a husband is falling down on his leadership responsibilities if the wife in general consistently is having to take the initiative in getting the family to church in gathering the family for devotions, or in on deciding what moral standards should be required of the children. I'm just going to say that again, because it's, I think it's really, really appropriate. For married men, there's going to be times when, in lots of areas of specific daily life when the wife's going to plan and initiate a lot of things within the house and family. That's good. But brothers, you are falling down on your leadership responsibilities if your wife in general consistently general pattern is having to take the initiative in getting the family to church, gathering the family for devotions, or deciding what moral standards will be required of the kids. If, you, if those things are falling onto your wife, guys, you are slacking, okay? And you're not doing your job. Do you remember what Joshua said when Israel was gathered together as he exhorted them to stay faithful to God? Joshua 24:15b. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Also note Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. 
Of course, there's going to be situations where a husband and father isn't a believer and the wife's going to have to take on more spiritual leadership. We have examples of this in Scripture. Timothy's grandmother, Lois, and his mother, Eunice, right? They were were believers and they were responsible for Timothy growing up as quite an incredible young man. Uh, So that's going to happen. And much wisdom is needed for those situations. And if you're a a woman who's married to an unbelieving man, please know that you can seek out counsel and encouragement from others within this congregation, okay? So that's that's number two, okay? Uh, that's That's number two. Biblical masculinity doesn't have to initiate every action, but feels the responsibility to provide a general pattern of initiative, okay? Number three, biblical masculinity accepts the burden of the final say in disagreements between the leader and the led. But he doesn't presume to use it in every circumstance. Okay? So, men, you've got the burden of the final say in disagreements between the leader and the led, but don't presume to use it in every circumstance. So men often either fall into one one of two extremes in leadership. We've talked about this, right? There are two sides of the donkey that you can fall off of as it relates to, to manhood. Either it's a domineering Daniel or it's passive Pete, right? It's one of the two you typically fall off of. You're either domineering or you're passive. The first is to be oppressive and overbearing. The second is to be passive and apathetic. And both are dangerous perversions of biblical leadership. In marriage and family, the husband is the one who has to answer to God for the direction of the family. So he must be aware of and embrace the responsibilities that the Lord has given Now, does this mean that a husband should always make all the decisions by himself? Absolutely not. That would be wrong because God has given you a helper in your wife, especially if she is a godly woman who speaks with wisdom, which means, men, we need help. We need help. So I know in my home, God has called me to be the head of my wife and my family, but I am under no illusion that I've got it all figured out and that I don't need my wife's wisdom. My wife helps me so often in so many ways. Uh, So I'm so grateful for that. And men, I hope that you can all resonate with that and say, yes, my wife is extremely helpful to me as well. We're not just making all these decisions on our own. And then finally, we should note that the biblical call to leadership is a call to repentance and humility. Again, let's read in, uh, we read in Luke 22 through 26, or 22, 26, sorry, you don't have to turn there, I'll just read it to you. Luke 22, 26. Let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. Therefore, every man should humble himself before God in sorrow for past failures, and for the indwelling tendency either to shrink from his responsibilities, or to overstep them, right? So that's either... Passive Pete or Domineering Daniel, right? First Peter 5, 6 says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you. To be a leader, a man must first become humble and recognize that he doesn't have it within himself, uh, the sufficient amount of wisdom or self-autonomy to lead his family well. God is the one who gives men the authority And God is the one who gives men the wisdom and then equips us, brothers, by the word and by the spirit to lead wisely, to lead well. 
So let me just pause there, give you opportunity for questions on any of those things. So we have talked about loving sacrificial leadership, and we have talked about clarifying statements about what loving and sacrificial leadership looks like, right? Um, it's not the demand to be served. It's not, woman, go get me my chips, right? Um, but it's serving sacrificially for the good of others. So that's number one. Number two, uh, being a, a, a leader doesn't mean you have to initiate every action, but you do. You bear the general responsibility of it, and you take that on. So you don't run from responsibility. You embrace it, right? Uh, and then three, Biblical masculinity, you accept the burden of the final say in disagreements, right? So if my wife and I are, are having trouble coming to an understanding of a, of, a, of a direction we should take, I have the final say and the final last call on that. But that, that is a, it's, a, it's a responsibility and it's a burden. Fortunately, that doesn't happen too often in our home. And I'm grateful for that because we try to work together as a team. But I do have the, the burden of the final say in disagreements, um, that, that falls to me as the leader of my home. It falls to you. Um, but I would encourage you not to presume to use that in every circumstance. So those are the three things. No, and then we talked about how leadership's a call to repentance and humility. So leadership is not pretending like you have it all figured out. And you don't have to have it all figured out. I'm so grateful for that. Uh, you know, once I came to really get clarity on the reality that being a leader in my home doesn't mean I have all the answers. It means I'm willing to take responsibility for trying to figure out the right answer. It means I have a responsibility to ask questions. It means I have the responsibility just to begin to try to figure this thing out. It doesn't mean I know. It just means I'm willing to say, this is my responsibility. I'm going to start to work on it. I'm going to start to figure it out. I, you know, I can do this by God's grace with your help, honey, with the help of brothers and sisters here at the church. I'm going to figure this out, and we're going to, I'm going to lead our family well. So, call to repentance, call to humility, not thinking you have to have all the answers. Questions on any of that stuff? There's a lot of stuff there. You got to have something scratching. Carol, and I'm going to try to repeat your question so that those who listen to the audio afterwards can get a sense as to what it is. <laughs> Men have the final say when, when it comes to a disagreement, and then Dave. Was emphasizing that? Okay. All right. All right. Uh, are, are you saying that it's up to them to figure out how to peacefully or seriously? Or are you trying to say it's up to them just quickly to end the discussion and say, this is going to be my way? Yeah. Well, let's say you're, you're, you're talking about a major decision like whether or not to move or not to move, and you're kind of at an impasse as to whether or not you make this decision to move towns or to you know, move jobs or whatever it may be, and you're working it through, but you just can't quite come to a, to, a, to a, oh, yes, where you both are like, yeah, this is exactly what we should do. You men, you have the, the final responsibility and, and the weight and the privilege that you, you have to make the final call. You're the one that makes the call. And the wife's call is to submit to his leadership at that point in time. Well, yeah, in principle, yes. But I would say in practice, if that's, 
if that's the general pattern of how decisions are taking place in the home, then something's wrong. You know, maybe the husband is, as I say you shouldn't be, presuming to use that all the time. Like, what would you like for dinner? I don't know. What would you like for dinner? I don't know. We're having chicken for dinner. You know, it's like, what? what uh, wouldn't she be okay if she just wanted pork chops? You know, uh, you know. So don't presume to use your your authority in every in every time, right? Um, and I would just say, if the tenor of of decision making or conversations in your marriage is one where it's oftentimes a lot coming down to some inability to come together on something, that's evidence of, of a deeper problem that needs to be examined. Maybe you're not communicating well. Maybe the wife isn't following well. Maybe the husband is being selfish and, and slightly domineering. There's just, I would say it would be evidence of something else. I would say that most Christian homes, it doesn't, this doesn't happen a lot in my experience. It does happen. And the husband needs to make the final call and the wife needs to follow his leadership and trust that God is working through him for her good. Even if she doesn't think that's the wisest call, right? But husbands, you shouldn't use that all the time. You shouldn't be laying down the trump card of just trust me, right? You want to earn your wife's trust in how you lead your family. Other questions on that stuff? Yes? Yeah. Yeah. I would no. I don't think they're limited to those. I think. I, I think. I mean, the overall. Sorry, the question was. Question. I'm going to try to get it for those who are just listening and not here. Okay, so the husband is to have a general pattern of initiative taking in regards to things. There were a couple of categories that I gave as examples. The question is, are those specific, specifically the only categories I'm speaking of, there are others? No, I'd say just overall. You just, men, you have the overall responsibility to take initiative for the flourishing and well-being of your home for all categories. So financial, spiritual, everything. You have the overall responsibility of trying to take initiative to move move your family down the court of flourishing. Which, please know, that doesn't mean you need to have all the answers. Again, be clear. Like use like you and your wife are a team, right? You are. So benefit from your wife as your best teammate and your best advisor, right? You, you, you should be making those decisions together. Uh, so biblical leadership and the responsibility of taking initiative doesn't mean you're like, follow me, I have the answers. This is what we're going to do in all of life. <laughs> uh, like, no, that's not what, that, that's, that's not what it means. Um, so you don't have to have all the answers. You're just saying, you know what, I know God's given me this privilege and this responsibility to be the one who's making sure that we're flourishing. So I'm going to try to do the best I can in all these realms. And my wife is helpful to me. My brothers are helpful to me. And I'm going to, I'm going to ask questions when I don't know the answers. And I just recognize that it's on me for our family to do well. It's on me. 
Like, if there's a problem in your family, brothers, let me just tell you, it's your problem. Like, it is your problem. Um, like, don't say it's my wife's fault. It's your problem, ultimately. Even if your wife is wrong, okay, it still falls on you to figure out how to, how to get past that impasse. Like, it is still fundamentally your problem uh, because you're finally, ultimately responsible for how your household goes. I think we see that in the, the reality that God came to Adam and not Eve, even though Eve was the one who sinned first. But Adam was responsible for it. So it's not saying your wife is not responsible, but you are, you are ultimately responsible. Other questions? Jimmy? How would you describe the intersection of the husband's authority in the home with um, the, the sphere of the church and when it's appropriate for a wife to appeal to elders? Um, is his authority, I don't think you would say absolute, but when does that kind of subsume into the authority of the elders? That's a great question. When, when the question was, I'm going to try to phrase your question in a similar way that you phrased it. How would I speak to the overlap of authority in the home, uh, a husband and wife? A uh, husband obviously is the authority figure over his wife, but they are both under the authority of the elders. And how would I speak to the overlap of authority? And when might the wife go to the elders if there's problems in the home? Things like that? Yeah, I think in this context, um, like, and the guy is resistant. Yes. He's passive. He's not wanting to participate in that. Yeah. So I think two things. Number one, uh, wives, I think you have a responsibility to give your husbands lots of grace and lots of heads up if you are having trouble with how they're leading or maybe not leading in whatever in whatever uh, realm okay so wives you have the responsibility to talk to your husbands about them about that sweetheart I'm having an issue with X we're having these problems with our kids and I and I don't feel like we have clarity on how we're handling this I don't feel like you're engaging in the way that I need you to engage I, I need more direction on this and I don't feel like you're you're engaging and I, I need you I need you to to help me here you know week later follow up honey I really, we need to talk about this again. And if the husband is just not engaging, then wives, I think you need to give the husband a heads up. Sweetheart, I feel like I need to, I need to, I need to reach out and ask for more help for this. So if you, if you aren't going to engage me, I need, to, I need to reach beyond and I need to talk to one of the elders at the church and I need to just ask for some help. And it's not because I don't respect you or love you. It's because I'm just needing some more help and you're not wanting to engage. Would you engage with me? Could we possibly go together and talk about this? You know? And if he's just surly, no, um, you know, well, that's not good. Uh, that's not a good sign, right? And then I think the wife has every right to talk to the elders at that point. Absolutely. I think you should do it respectfully. I think that you should let your husband know. Um, and by the way, so we have in my household, you guys may know this, um, we just have a standing understanding between my wife and I that if she feels like I'm not taking care of something or not... Uh, addressing her concern or if she's bothered and I'm not able to resolve it she has the freedom to talk to any one of the elders at any time um, and I do not view that as a uh, uh, some 
uh, denial of my leadership or something, going behind my back or, or anything like that. It's a recognition that I'm, I'm a man and I'm, I'm sinful and I, I, I don't always make the right call. So that's why God gave us the local church to where we're not islands to ourselves. So let's be humble men and recognize sometimes we do mess up and that's why God's given us the church, right? And so that's a good thing too. Does that answer your question, Jimmy? Okay. What if he says no? Uh, no to speaking with the elders? Then I think you have a decision to make in regards to how important the issue is. Uh, so I think you can still bring that to the elders. I think you just need to make a decision as to if that... It's going to cost you something relationally. And I think you just have to make that decision of, is this an issue that I want to bring to the elders and am I willing to, to bear the cost of that relationally? And obviously the elders are going to engage with the husband and say, you know, if he gets surly with you for that, we would engage him on that. Uh, but I think you just have to make the decision at that point. John? Are responsible for problems in your family, family presumably that's extended family. I wouldn't uh, not draw it out that far. Go ahead. Okay, so I'll, I'll rephrase it then a bit. If you're a single guy and you see things going on in the family you grew up with and you're giving to them and you're being somebody else is advocating their responsibility, so to speak. Where do you where do you come to a place where you go, you know what, I'm I'm doing things that I should not have to do and you need to step up and Still being supportive, but basically saying, here's the line, and you've walked over it. Or is there a line? Yeah, so the question is, if, if you're a single man and you have uh, extended family or, or, or family that you're part of, but you're single, um, and when and where and how much are you responsible for their actions and, and how much do you have responsibility for that? Is that an honest rephrasing of your question? So I think that you're not as responsible for... You are an independent household on your own. So I think God holds you accountable most clearly for your household, which would just be you at this point, John, right? Not you and your parents. They're their own household, and God's going to hold him accountable for his household. He's going to hold you accountable for your household, which is just you. You do have a responsibility to be helpful to them, but not as much as if you were... if you have the most responsibility over your own household, which is just you right now. So I think you try to be helpful, but I don't think God holds you responsible for what they're doing. He's going to hold the head of that household responsible for what's going on there. Any other questions? If you don't have authority over an aspect of your family, God isn't going to hold responsible for that. Because responsibility is commensurate with authority, is what Brad is saying, and yes, you're exactly right. You don't have authority over your parents or your cousins or your aunts or uncles. You have authority over your immediate household, so that is the household over which you will be held responsible. Now, obviously, you have the call in First Peter five, First Timothy five eight, that if you don't provide for your own family, you're worse than infidel. That that carries over to 
if your parents fall ill and you're the nearest of kin, I think God is telling you you're the most responsible person and you need to pick up the mantle and make sure that they get taken care of. You are responsible for that, yes. Okay, let's keep going just so that we can uh, get through here. Um, okay, in particular contexts prescribed by God's word, men and women have all types, types of different relationships. And these differing relationships bring different ro roles and responsibilities. So the context of their relationships will help to determine the appropriate ways men and women relate to each other. Like Adam, men should feel a sense of responsibility for the well-being of others. However, we've got to remember that the role of Adam's authority over Eve was grounded in the context of a covenantal relationship. So that's marriage. So a husband and wife will have different responsibilities to each other than two single members uh, in the church of opposite sexes. Okay? An elder and a female church member will relate differently than a biological brother or sister. There are differing responsibilities for the way men relate to women in business, government, friendship, neighborhood, courtship, engagement, relationships, right? For now, it's useful to point out the scriptures are prescriptive. So remember that difference between prescriptive, right, and descriptive. Descriptive is just this is, and it's up to you to figure out whether or not this is a specific example for you. Scripture gives us a lot of descriptions, um, many of which you should not follow, like, you know, the Old Testament kings. Um, and then prescriptive is, is Scripture saying you should do this. This is an example. So Scripture is prescriptive in formalizing two male headship and a... And a I'm sorry, in... Blah, blah, blah. They are prescriptive in formalizing male headship and authority in two spheres of covenantal relationships. Number one, a husband is called to lead his wife and family in the home. And number two, male elders are called to exercise authority in the local church. And though all men will not and should not exercise authority over all women, men still should sense a, 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 an, a desire to feel a responsibility for the good of others. Paul says to Timothy, a younger man, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. First, uh, First Timothy 5.2. So guys, you know, do you have any fathers or mothers in the church that you respect and look up to? Any younger brothers you're taking responsibility to mentor? Would would brotherly be an accurate way to describe your relationships with men in the body, with women in the body? Do women feel protected and cared for in a respectful, respectful way by the way you interact with them? I just encourage you to take an inventory of your relationships and see if they fit this family-like character that Paul describes for us. So that's our working uh, summary of biblical masculinity. It is displayed in a sense of benevolent responsibility to tend God's creation, provide for and protect others, and express loving, sacrificial leadership in particular contexts, the home and the church, as prescribed by God's word. And it's the image of a shepherd, really. It's the image of a shepherd. Think of Moses, the shepherd leader. David, the shepherd king. Christ, the good shepherd who came to lay his life down for the sheep. One who tends, one who provides, one who protects, one who serves, one who leads, like the Lord in Psalm 23. One who leads others to green pastures for their flourishing 
and still waters for the restoration of their souls and for their overall welfare. That's what we're talking about here. And to, to just conclude, let's just think about two men for just a second. So to my fellow husbands, to my fellow fathers, some of you have neglected your wives by spending maybe too much time watching TV or scrolling on your phone or working on projects or doing hobbies. Some of you are prone to being lazy and passive. Some of you are too arrogant or domineering. And some of you have simply given yourselves so much to your job that the garden of your home is drooping due to lack of nourishment and engagement. Okay. Now, some men who are single, maybe you have acted selfishly in ways you've thought about women. Maybe you've been sinfully passive and ignored opportunities to provide for and protect others around you. Maybe some have forgotten what it means to relate to sisters in Christ with purity. But either way, whether married or single, all of you, me, we have fallen short of the glory of God. But the Bible does contrast two men, right? The Bible contrasts two men. The first one was Adam, created by God to steward God's creation, to provide leadership for his bride, to obey God's commands, and he totally failed. (laughs) The second Adam, he was the perfect man who served sacrificially, used his authority for good, laid down his life for his bride, and fully obeyed his father's commands. Jesus perfectly displays biblical masculinity where Adam, no matter how much he could bench press or how much money he made, he fell short of God's design for masculinity, right? So, when we fail like the second Adam, and brothers, we fail like all the time, right? We fail like all the time. When we fail, like the first Adam, we should look to the second Adam who both forgives our sins and empowers us in our weaknesses and in our remaining selfishness to love and lead as he loves and leads. So let me just pause there and give opportunity for questions and comments. Questions and comments about anything we've talked about tonight or anything that's struck a chord with you in relation to biblical masculinity. Yes, Martin. Just a comment. I would say if there's a major decision and the husband and wife are at odds and the wife is dead set against it, you'd better put on the brakes and listen pretty hard. Because the Lord may be very well trying to get his attention and he may have a blind spot. That's a good word. So Martin just said he would counsel as an older godly man. Martin is saying, uh, I would counsel if there are husbands... Uh, if the husband and wife cannot cannot come to a, to a mind on a major decision, the husband would do well to pump the brakes because uh, the Lord may be using the wife um, in a way that he does not perceive and he may have a blind spot. And to that I would just say, amen. Amen. Pump the brakes. Amen. Yes. I once had, believe it or not, I once had a husband in my office and he was just flabbergasted and he could not understand why his wife was upset at him for taking a job that would require them to move and he hadn't spoken with her about it at all. And he was just clueless as to why she was so upset. 
And I was like, brother, if you keep this up, you guys are going to be functionally just roommates um, because she's not going to want to, she's just not going to want to be around you if you keep just just running life as though she doesn't even exist. Uh, he's like, this is clearly the best thing for our family. I'm like, but you didn't even give her an opportunity to talk about it. Um, that's not your exact situation, Martin, but it, it reminded me of that old story. Other questions or comments? You know, our society has a lot of pressure to be anything but what we're talking about. And how you find peace in the midst of that. Our society has a lot of pressure to be anything but what we're talking about. How do we find peace in the midst of that? What is it that we're talking about, John? What it is to be a, a man. What it is to be a man. Oh, I'd say, here's how you find peace in that. Because you know that all of God's ways are for our good. So when you begin to step into what God simply prescribes for manhood, it's almost like, who cares what the rest of the world says? Because this just feels good. <laughs> it's, like, it's like having a clean conscience. You know when you've sinned? and you repent and you confess and you leave that sin behind, you know, it just feels like you took a bath with, with, and it was just fantastic. You feel wonderful, right? Same thing when you just embrace biblical manhood because that's what God prescribes for us. You don't really care about what the world says about it because you know that this is what God says and this is good. And, you f and your experience reinforces it because it just feels so good to walk in the ways of God. So it's really not troubling. Carol? Mention anything, and maybe this is just in another week. Where does a man's responsibility come into with um, elderly, aging, and uh, health-compromised parents? Where does a man's responsibility come into play with elderly, aging, compromised parents? That's the question. I think you... Men have a responsibility for your extended, for your parents when they begin to get into that realm. Uh, you have a responsibility to make sure that they're not destitute or unable to be cared for. And I think you have a responsibility to work with them and help them to continue to live. So that may look like bringing them into your home. That may look like helping them get into a senior assisted living center. That may look like helping them to just downsize to a house that's not the two-story house that they had for years. Either way, you're just, you're, you're with them and you're helping them. Uh, it doesn't mean that you're, it doesn't mean that you've become responsible, they're not responsible. I mean, sometimes you have that in extreme situations like with what the Larsons have had, right, where Doug could no longer carry out his responsibilities as the leader of his home. You know, there was a reversal that took place there. But it just means that you have a benevolent responsibility to make sure they are having, getting things taken care of. And could I say this? I, I would just like to, so brothers, I, I do, I really want to say that if you feel like you're just not doing a great job as either a husband or a father, if you're just discouraged, I want to encourage you. The first thing to do is tomorrow morning, go to God, confess that to Him in prayer, okay? And, and ask Him, ask Him for grace to do a better job. 
And then I want you to spend some time in your Bible, okay? And then I just want you to spend some time in prayer, okay? That's what I want you to do. If you feel like you're not doing a good job, I just want you to confess that to God as sin if you're being either passive Pete or domineering Daniel. Confess that to God, okay? Spend some time in your Bible. Spend some time in prayer. And then I want you to talk to your wife. And I want you to say, I feel like I'm being passive Pete. Do you feel like I'm being passive Pete? She's going to say, yes, I feel like you're being passive Pete. Okay, I'm sorry. I recognize that's not wrong. I mean, I recognize that's not right. And I'm going to try to grow in this. Can, can you just, I'm going to try to grow in this. And, uh, and maybe you two together just talk about how you can do that. Um, and by the way, it just begins with being faithful in the responsibilities that you have. And, and what you can do that will help you the most, at least to get started, is to just is to is to work on being holy, and spending time with God, uh, in His Word and in prayer, turning from sin, and then just talking to your wife about how things are going. Uh, that's going to help you like immensely. Wherever you are, wherever you are, do not simply feel, do not simply, do not buy the lie of the devil, which says, I've done a terrible job up until this point, and I'm 45, 55, 65, nothing's going to change. That's a lie, okay? Uh, Do not buy that lie of the devil, and instead just say, I'm going to try to do the best job I can with who I am, and and, and I'm going to try to grow in being a godly man in the way I relate to my wife, the way I relate to my kids, I'm going to try to accept this responsibility instead of shirking it. Or if you're domineering Daniel, by the way, same counsel for you, right? If you're just being a jerk uh, under the name of leadership, then you need to repent of that too. Ask your wife to help you understand when you're being domineering Daniel and have the humility to just confess that, right? So wherever you are, I just want you to have hopefulness in your heart. This is not about performance. This is about the grace of God and that His Word gives us all things necessary for life and godliness. The thing you can do for yourself that will serve yourself the most is to repent of your sin and to spend time in God's Word, to spend time in prayer, and then to talk to your wife and to others in the church about your concerns and begin to get a game plan. It's really so simple. Honesty, humility, holiness, and then ask for help from your spouse, from others around you. So simple, so good. It will do you so much good spiritually. I'll leave you with that. Let me close this in prayer. God, thank you for this time, and I pray, Lord, that you would help our church continue to grow in living out what you have for us uh, in the Bible in regards to biblical manhood and womanhood. As John was saying, this is not you know, the prevailing winds in our day, uh, but who cares what the prevailing winds are, Father? It's so good to walk in the light of the law of the Lord. As the psalmist said, in your law I meditate day and night. Your statutes are my delight, and they make me wiser than my counselors because I delight in your word. Lord, make us men who delight in your word. Make us men who accept responsibility and don't shirk it. Make us men who delight in holiness. Um, And make us men who are willing to just keep doing the best we can, uh, knowing that you give us grace. And we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.